Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Hackers and Hyperbole Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Not a hacker, occasionally hyperbolic. I gotta tell you, I discovered an amazing thing about your introduction to Rational Security. You mean like the introduction of like every week? Yeah. What is it? So there is this uh, research assistant uh, um, here in governance studies at Brookings uh-huh. who uh, whenever she says hello to me, uh-huh. there's something familiar sounding about it. <laughs> and I realized the other day it was because she sounds exactly like you. Is it Liz? Oh, Liz. It's Liz. Hi, Liz. She Liz. says hello that way? She says hello. 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 And, and I keep waiting for her to add after it. Um, <laughs> and welcome to Rational Security. Welcome to the Brookings welcome Kitchen. Um, Can I tell you, like, it took me a while to figure out, like, to settle on what intonation to use. Yeah, well, this is, uh, you, you know, one of the... It's uh, very the, unnatural. It, the register of her voice <laughs> is, of course, completely different from yours. But the tone is exactly the same. I like that. And so I think next week we should have Liz Tom come in and, uh, you know, we can, we can do competing hello and welcome to Rational Security. Good idea. I could also change it up a little bit each week. No, I like it. It's your good night and good luck. Yeah, it's that's that's it. Exactly. It's the same. It's it's essentially the the same. Oh, thank God. I've ascended to such Hello. I want to do it like Kim Jong-il in uh, Team America. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) That would be good. Boy, that would... Maybe that's so much. Maybe not. Maybe not. It's not so much a brand fit Mm -hmm. for this show. Mm -hmm. Uh, But hello. I am joined here in the studio, as always, by my friends Benjamin Wittes. Hello, Ben. Hey. And Susan Hennessy. Hello, Susan. Hi, Shane. Where is Tamara this week? She's in Indiana. Indiana. Beautiful, beautiful Indiana. Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, Oh, she's speaking on some panel I heard about. She's speaking on some panel you heard about. That's right. That's right. Okay. Story of her life. Yeah, Tammy, well, just talking her. about stuff. Better places to be talking about stuff than here, I guess. That's okay. Fine. Hope she's having a great time. Uh, anyway, meanwhile, well, we have more than enough news to, to go around this week. Uh, so the dispute between the FBI and Apple over a dead terrorist's iPhone comes to an end, but new fights are just around the corner. Why did bombings in Pakistan and Iraq get so little attention compared to the attacks in Brussels? And the Justice Department indicts seven Iranians for allegedly launching cyber attacks on U.S. banks and a dam in New York. Plus, as always, object lessons. Um, so let's start with, I guess, the big news of the week, right? The FBI says to Apple, just kidding. They did it. We don't need you to hack that phone for they us. cracked we it wide it. open. Cracked it open. Susan, why don't you bring us up just to just bring us up to speed on, um, the, 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 you know, not the whole saga, but like the, the latest... Uh, legal machinations over the weekends that brought us here. 
So it's over. Um, the Justice Department has filed a motion, uh, has withdrawn its motion uh, asking for Apple's assistance. Uh, the FBI has now announced that they have validated the method to uh, to obtain access to data on Syed Farouk's phone. Um, this essentially ends the court case. Um, however, it of course does not end the larger debate over encryption, um, and it actually leaves a number of legal questions still open. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, uh, in, in sort of saying just kidding. Uh, the FBI now uh, is saying that the help is no longer necessary in San Bernardino. Uh, it and took... they're only saying right now, at least, in San Bernardino. Right. So, of course, there are all these other court cases uh, proceeding, most notably in the Eastern District of New York, on different kinds of operating systems. Um, so already, uh, Apple has filed uh, an update in that case, in the, in the New York case, uh, essentially saying uh, that now the Justice Department should explain whether or not the method works there. Um, sort of uh, getting at questions of what the scope of, of the government's obligation is uh, to either obtain help from other parts of the government or um, or obtain or to purchase services on the commercial sector. Um, and then, of course, at the same time, we now have people who are calling for FBI to disclose its method to Apple, including you. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> calling for it. I'm betting they will. But you do want to win that bet, so you're kind of calling for them to do it. You even said in that piece they should. Oh, I, so I do think that they probably should. This is a piece should. you wrote for Lawfare this, this week. This is a piece that I wrote for Lawfare this week. So there's, there's been a lot of speculation um, around this, the <laughs> VEEP, uh, the vulnerabilities equities process. Which um, needs a better name, by the way. It does. Yeah. It does need a we better name. We should maybe put that out to the rational security listenership. Oh, you yeah. should tweet us better names. Like for the exploit Orama. I think I think we should all th- give some thought to suggestions for better names for the vulnerabilities equities yeah. process. Right. Bug disclosure process is better. I like bug bounties. You bug know? bounties are good. Too. Bug, bug bounty is a good name for bug reveal. <laughs> and then that does raise the question of whether or not Apple should be required to compensate the we, government for discovering. We, we should also this, say in this uh, case, this it's it's not exactly clear whether. And this is an important distinction, too. We don't have all the answers yet, but there's speculation. But it's not clear whether, you know, to put it simply, the FBI's outside party conducted a hardware hack or a software hack. In other words, was there a vulnerability discovered in the software of the, of the iPhone operating system in play here? Or did they physically do something to this one phone in their possession? Um, not to say that that couldn't be replicable, but obviously that would not be necessarily replicable on a large scale, unless there was some neat trick they performed that if that were to get out, you know, anyone could do it, but that seems kind of doubtful. Well, and I think there's also a big question. It seems a little more difficult than that is what I mean. Right. So, is you know, with any one of these things, the you have the question of, is the process by which you have to go through in order to do it labor-intensive, difficult, expensive, or is it merely difficult to find out how to do it? But then doing it a second time, a third time, a fourth time uh, is not difficult, right? And and so, you know, I, I think the specific forensic method that they've discovered probably matters a lot in terms of how useful this is. So it sounds like, too, that there may be, there's, there's been some interesting speculation around this, one of which by a, a writer for the ACLU's tech blog, which I thought was really fascinating, that he basically suggested several days ago a way you could do this by removing physically removing one of the key chips in the phone, copying the contents of that chip off uh, and storing them, and then basically having creating a backup 
of the information that you needed, and then going about trying to decrypt the phone. It was just sort of, I'm probably mixing it a little bit this way, but basically saying that there was a way to physically break open the phone and do this. And it makes me wonder if whether or not this is, you know, that the method is just just as simple as that. Look, so there's been Let's a ton of like, speculation. It feels like everyone from the information security community has suddenly come out with like 10 obvious ways to hack an iPhone that were totally unknown as of, you know, 10 days ago. Right. Um, look, Jim Comey expressly said whenever asked about the mirroring technique, I'm aware of the technique. It does not work. So he said that. I don't know how much, so I don't know how many sort of um, variations on the mirroring technique there might be. Um, he was pretty unequivocal. Um, so I think that the sort of, you know, the, the widespread speculation about, well, you know, uh, who did it or, or how was it done? I, I think it's, it's safe to sort of characterize it as just speculation at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that, you know, there's also been sort of a fair amount of discussion about whether or not essentially the Justice Department has been lying this whole time, right? So, um, so all these people are saying, I said, you know, I said six weeks ago or I said last week that there was this method. Um, you know, therefore the Justice Department must have been aware of the method as well. Um, you know, the, the Department of Justice is, is really pretty uh, explicit in their filing to the court. Um, they tell the court that they found out on a Sunday morning um, you know, that, that they needed additional time to test uh, the method in question, um, that it was not known to them before that point. Um, so if, you know, if these are sort of, if any of these methods that have sort of been out and, and having been discussed over the past month, month or so actually do end up um, being the method in question, that points to the Justice Department making pretty substantial misrepresentations to the court. Right. Yeah, I think, the, I, I think if you go back to the Justice Department's major brief to the court, uh, it is pretty unequivocal about their not being able to do this. And uh, I, I think one thing that a lot of people who are saying that this shows that the Justice Department has been lying to the court in the Central District of California, one thing that very few of those people have ever done is practiced in a federal court. And they have, you know, they may be very good tech security people, but they don't know federal court <coughs> practice. Right. And they don't know what it means when the Justice Department puts its name on a brief that says this is not possible, that we cannot do this. Um, and when the Justice Department comes into court all of a sudden and says, we may have found a way to do this, it's because they uh, have, it's not because, necess- you know, people think it's because they have a hearing coming right up. The real reason is that they've made representations to a federal court and they don't want to be in the position of sitting on information that would make those representations less truthful than they were at the time that they made them. So they find out on a Sunday morning, they came into court on a Monday I think Monday morning, morning. they make the filing. Right. And, um, and they asked everything to be put on hold. So I think the one thing I'm confident of is, other than that the conspiracy theory is that Apple has sort of secretly set up a system to route this information to the government. Oh, I Pretty, hadn't heard that yeah, yet. Yeah, no, that, one's, that one. one's going around too. Um, is that the federal government, this isn't a situation of the federal government doing something nefarious. This is a situation where the government f- was made aware of something it was previously unaware of and acted very precipitously on that information, um, even before it knew whether it was good, which it turned out to be. Um, I'm completely disappointed by the whole thing, 
but it is. It's kind of a fizzle, right? No, it's, it's like all so oh, the build dull. up and then. But here's why. I'm going to make the argument actually for why this is not dull. <clears throat> is that the FBI discovered the power of the markets in this case, and Jim Comey even alluded to them, and we talked about this that once they came out publicly and said. We've got no way that we know of to get the data off this phone, so we're going to go to court. It sounds like just hackers and researchers started beating a path to the FBI's door and coming up with lots of ideas, and like there was the mirroring idea, which I actually missed him saying that didn't work. So that's interesting, right? So lots of ideas, even some that were publicly voiced, and they were saying no, 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 but then eventually one did work. He talked about this, and it's sort of, you know, you, you could almost kind of sense the, 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 the he wasn't quite smiling, but he seemed very pleased with this. It's like, lo and behold, there are just a lot of creative, intelligent people. It turns out, out you it can fix out. it. Yeah, so. and that's a, that's that's an amazing kind of thing. To me, this was like, and I wrote this this week was. This is the FBI essentially saying to tech companies out there, help us or don't help us. We will find a way without right. you. But here's the thing: is like, it's not good enough, and it's not good enough because. What's it been? Three, four months since they've had that phone? Yeah. Um, and every time you get a phone or a computer or, you know, you know, think three, four years from now when your baby monitor is connected to the Internet of Things, right? And you seize a baby monitor to figure out who kidnapped the baby. And every time you're going to have to go through this weird process of finding some company <clears throat> that may or may not be able to help you effectuate your warrant. You don't know whether you're going to be able to do it. You don't know what the time frame's going to be. Um, and, you know, that is not a satisfying outcome from a law enforcement And I think most importantly, there is now widespread confusion about the state of the law. Um, that's a problem. It's a problem for companies. It's a problem for the government. It's a problem for law enforcement. Whatever the rules end up being, people have to know what the well, rules are. Was that confusion are. already there and this just brought that to the surface? So I think the confusion had been simmering for a while, yeah. but I think that there had been sort of, um, you know, privately held assumptions. I think that the government had always sort of privately believed that the All Writs Act compelled this type of assistance. Um, I think it's sort of clear from from the tenor of their briefings that this this seems like an obvious, apparent, and natural sort of progression of the law to them. Um, Apple, by its own sort of tone, you can tell that they're they're gobsmacked by it. They really they never believed that they could be compelled. They thought that sort of they were going to provide assistance and then security uh, features were going to evolve and then it was all going to go away, right? So I think that now what you really have is sort of is a proof. Um, and both sides looking at each other and realizing that they have totally different conceptions of the world. Um, and now, like, we haven't had a judge weigh in yet. The EDNY case uh, has now been appealed up to the district court level. Um, so Judge Margot Brody will decide in that case. Uh, however, th- sort of the most that that, that uh, court will be able to determine is the scope of obligation where Apple already has... Um, already has the capacity uh, to unlock the iOS 7 in that case. Surely it will answer some of kind of the outstanding questions. Uh, The ACLU has now identified, I think, 63, 68 cases in which the government has compelled assistance from Apple or Google under the All Rights Act. One thing that sort of popped out to the lawyer's eye because they mapped it all on a map was that's interesting. They've identified cases in every single federal circuit. 
interesting that the ACLU would be looking at that, right? So, so you now have a lot of attention on these issues. Um, they're going to have to get resolved. So they're going to have to either get resolved by being worked all the way up through the courts, whatever on whatever set of facts, sort of good or bad, end up being presented, yeah. uh, or or Congress is going to have to step in and and create legislation, or both. Because I mean, I I think you know the All Writs Act cases and the congressional case ask different questions, one, or potentially ask different questions. One asks the question of the All Writs Act cases, asks the question of what is the company's obligations when faced with an investigative exigency. Um, Congress potentially gets to ask a very different question, which is the CALEA question, which is what is a company's responsibility at the time that it's being designing its systems in the first place. And those are very different questions, and I think legislators um, may have uh, very different answers to it, at least some legislators will, than, than judges faced with an immediate exigency of a, of a, um, of a urgent case. In the meantime, do we presume that the FBI now has a pretty powerful tool that it can use, not in all iPhones, but unsettling. There are at least 12 reportedly other iPhones that they want access to. Might it work in those cases too? So, of course it might, but I think it would be silly to presume anything more than that the FBI now has a method to unlock an iOS 7, <clears throat> uh, an iPhone 5C running an I, uh, iOS 9. If right? the wallpaper is green. <laughs> right, right. Well, like, I mean, right, it's though. like, it's not... Like, because that's how these, um, that's how these tools tend to be in the past, right? They tend to be both device specific and operating, um, system specific. So sure, like, I think it's a little bit of kind of the magical thinking of, oh, this mysterious Israeli company has now discovered the thing, like, that nobody else knew about. Uh, I don't know. I think it's more likely that whenever you put a ton of really smart minds on a problem, um, sort of made it high profile, made it a point of kind of personal pride in the information security community, um, they figured out a method for this phone. Uh, I'm certain that Apple will um, inadvertently or intentionally uh, design their system such that it's uh, it's not going to be uh, you know it's not going to be a method that, that unlocks a phone in perpetuity, right? They're going to they're going to close this gap at some point. Um, but even now, uh, we'll see how the Justice Department responds to the EDNY charge, right? They'll they will at least have to answer whether or not this mechanism can work for an iOS seven. Then we'll know, all right? Is it you know all sort of operating systems back in time? No, but I don't think you get. I don't think the EDNY question will address this because if I were the Justice Department, so well, I mean, I suppose they, they could be forced, as as Apple suggests, they could be forced to try it. But this is a case where I think Apple's hand is much much weaker. Than oh, I agree. Be, because Apple acknowledges that it has the capability to do this. And so Right, but they but they do appear to be mounting a challenge to the necessity prong of the All Writs Act, right? Saying that uh, the government has in San Bernardino, whenever they whenever they um, right. whenever they withdraw their motion, they say the help is no longer necessary, yeah. right? So I think Apple is saying, "Aha, you've given away the game, right? You've admitted that if there's a third party way, it's no longer necessary under the law." Now, I think the Justice Department will disagree, right? They'll say we made a strategic decision in a particular case to not pursue 
pursue it based on our understanding of the, of the, the law and the very specific fact circumstances. But I, I do think Apple will end up um, mounting that argument. And I have to say, I think it's much stronger now than it was in October when the case first arose. I'm honestly not sure that's right. So, you know, the ne- necessary prong comes from uh, New York uh, Telephone, where uh, they wanted help installing a pen register device. Now, surely, if you muster the entire resources of the federal government and every contractor they can conceivably hire um, and every method that months and months of work could possibly have come up with, they could install a pen register device without the help of New York Telephone. Um, that that wasn't the issue. The issue was, is it necessary, in some sense, your effort to do it relative to the government's effort to do it? It would be trivial for you. It would be a really big deal for the FBI to have to do it on their own. That's what necessary meant in New York Telecom um, and at New York Telephone. And I think the the idea that Apple is going to say, if you is going to prevail on the idea that if you can, you know, launch a Manhattan Project-like effort to unlock a particular phone, you must do that before you can invoke the All Writs Act. I find it very difficult to believe that they prevail on that. Right, and notably, um, there's always been a widespread understanding, and the government, in fact, stipulates that there are third-party services and have been for many years that are capable of unlocking the iOS 7 phone. So they're not. The government isn't factually in a different position. The question is just whether or not the judge is going to look to San Bernardino and and be influenced. So we may find out on April 11th, which is the deadline for it's a status update that the government has promised to give in the EDNY case. Um, <clears throat> but I want I just want to add to this the ultimate chutzpah here, which is that Apple, having refused all help beyond you know that involved writing their precious code, now wants the government to disclose. How it did it. It wants, it wants the a form of sort of technical assistance, exactly. one might say. And it wants a writ from the court forcing the government to do that. I don't know that it actually has asked for a writ from well, the court. Well, it sort of has in the EDNY case. I guess actually now they have done it, <laughs> they really. Have, they have asked the court in New York to have the government verify whether it can do it so that Apple can test this thesis. That, that, that whether it's doable. They've really asked a court to force the government to tell them what they're doing. Have they done that in the motion or is this in the letter that the lawyer wrote? This is the letter wrote? that the, the letter court the has. Lawyer wrote, yep. right. yeah. Yeah. Which has not received enough attention. It hasn't. Hopefully, some intrepid reporter <laughs> will. I um, well, wonder we'll, who that'll be. I don't know. Well, you're, you used to be a journalist. You should do it. Um, meh. Meh. All right. Um, let's move on. Um, other crazy things happening in the world this week. There was a terrorist attack in Brussels, but you might have missed. You the might fact have missed. That there were massive, deadly bombings in Pakistan and Lahore, uh, and also in Baghdad, um, that killed a lot more people uh, than the ones I think uh, in, in Brussels. Um, which has sort of raised the question, I think, in a lot of people's minds. Certainly, I've been talking about it with journalist colleagues. Uh, 
Why did the attacks in Brussels, not to downplay or minimize their importance, receive so much more attention than the attacks uh, elsewhere? This actually came up when I was doing a, a, a roundtable on NPR last week, and I made the argument that I think that in newsrooms, though unspoken, there is often this sort of presumption that if a bomb goes off in Baghdad, well, that kind of thing happens all the time. And there have been many instances of car bombs killing dozens of people all at once, and it almost just fails to register because it seems to become part of, you know, the background. And there's this sense of like, well, these things happen in that part of the world all the time, but when it's in Europe, it's something very different. And it is something different, but... It, it sort of it, it was it was kind of on striking display this week how so we seem I, to tune out these other events and really focus on an attack in Brussels that you know without kind of trying to make space for you know all of these things and how they're related. Right, I think it's I think it's particularly remarkable in this case because while it is true, right, that um, that those parts of the world tend to see more of these events, or um, certainly Western media is more sort of. Uh, you know, customized to seeing, uh, seeing these kinds of attacks in that region. You know, look, the nature of both of these bombings is really, uh, really unsettling. They're both attacks on kids. Um, the Lahore attack, which killed 69 people, injured over 400. Um, they expect the death toll to rise further. Was at a kid's park on Easter. Um, most of the victims are purportedly women and children. Uh, the bombing in Iraq was at a kid's soccer match whenever they were handing out the trophies at the end of a tournament. Um, there, 39 dead, 84 wounded, uh, the majority between uh, young boys between 10 and 16. This is the kind of um, really sort of heart-wrenching, horrifying stuff that should be uh, should be catalyzing to people everywhere, right? I think sometimes it's hard for... Um, you know, be it sort of some kind of internalized racism or just, or, or sort of not being able to connect to people of different lives. It's hard to sort of um, connect to adults in different parts of the world. It's not that hard to connect to a fellow right. parent. It's right. not that hard to understand what, like, what the experience of a two-year-old is like places. And so I have to say, I am surprised to see so little coverage. So I was... Um actually intrigued. So the, the round table that you're talking about, Shane, was the Diane Reem show on Friday. And I was really intrigued by the reaction of the different journalists mm-hmm. to uh, this suggestion that there was some wild disproportion of coverage. It ranged from you who tried to analytically explain it to Nadia Bilbezi, um, who basically said, it's racism, nobody cares when 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 Arabs and, and um, Pakistanis get blown up, to very defensive, I forget who was the... Yeah, um, Catherine Lambert. Who yeah. was really defensive, saying, yeah. we, we cover this equally, and, you know, and it's different when it's in the center of Europe. Right. And I thought that reaction was fascinating. First of all, I don't... Maybe think that was Tom Bowman, actually. But yeah, one I, of the other I, I don't think it is racism, exactly, in the sense that I don't think anybody says, oh, like a bunch of brown people got blown up, you know, Trust. fine. Right. No I don't, I don't care. That. No yeah. one says that. On the other hand, I do think the it's different when it's in the center of Europe thing is a real idea out there. Mm-hmm. And somehow, you know, ISIS penetrating into Belgium is a much more threatening idea to us than the Pakistani Taliban killing a lot of people in Lahore. Uh, and by the way, 
killing Muslims in Lahore is less threatening than killing Christians in Lahore. Mm-hmm. Um, Although it was an attack on Christians. I know, I know. That's right. why I'm, I'm making that, you know. Um, and I think there's a... Um, I think there is this sense, as you describe, that um, there are parts of the world that are just, you know, lost to the possibility of normal life, and that there's something not that surprising... And while horrifying, not that, you know, interesting or newsworthy um, about things blowing up in places where we expect things to blow up. Do you think the difference between it being ISIS versus the the Pakistani Taliban is relevant, right? Do you think that um, that the media, ISIS is like the hot new terrorist, whereas the Taliban's kind of old news? I I think that's, I think there is that, but I also think there's ISIS is that ISIS is being very clever about the way they present their attacks. That, you know, the Pakistani Taliban is pretty old school. They blow people up and kill people and, you know, and they shoot and they use bombs and IED, right, and blow things up, right? And ISIS is beheading, you know, beheads people. It issues these amazing videos. It's really being very, it's thinking very hard about the theatricality of things. And one of the theatrical propositions is don't stay in the region where people are expecting it, right? And go take the fight to the enemy in the airport, in the in the places where, you know, the people the media will most care about and most follow um, will, will really notice. And if you can cut their heads off, Cut their heads off, right? If you have to use a bomb, make sure you do it in some, some place that it's gonna matter. And I think, you know, rather than being as defensive as some of the press were in that conversation, I think it's really worth the press asking the question, do we wanna play into this? And, you know, I, you know, I think the Tom Bowmans of the world should ask the question, is it a form of journalistic resistance to cover what's going on in Lahore the way we would cover um, what's going on in Belgium? And, and really to say, you know, and by the way, the, the, to say that the struggles of the Pakistani government are, this is not meant as an affront, an affront to the Belgians, are not that different from the struggles of the Belgian government. I mean, they're both inadequate counterterrorism forces faced with a sort of, you know, uh, kind of overwhelming sudden problem and not knowing how to handle it. And I, I do think, you know, figuring out how to treat, you know, h- how to treat systemic assaults on human life as something uh, morally equivalent and equivalently morally and journalistically interesting is a challenge to media organizations and frankly they're not passing it. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, unless, incidentally, unless you put the guy in a cage and make a particularly theatrical video about killing an individual. Yeah. Then, then they go for it, and it doesn't matter if he's a, a Jordanian pilot or a um, or a uh, American journalist, right? Then that, that's that, that's equally uh, uh, 
But then you're really playing ISIS's game. You are, and I think this also though comes back to, <clears throat> and they know this too, that one of the number one things that always drives news in the United States is novelty. Is there is the story of the conflict novel? Have we not seen it before? So we have seen lots of instances of people blowing up people in Baghdad, burning a guy alive in a cage. That's different. Uh, we've seen lots of instances of the Taliban doing awful things in Pakistan, blowing up a subway in Belgium. Ooh, that's different. It has the, the if it's the combination, I think, of novelty, of fear because it's closer to home. It happens in a place that looks like the kind of place that our Americans are more familiar with. I mean, these are, again, I think these are the largely unspoken influences that drive editorial decision-making in the United States. I think it's not the case. If you were to, I'm sure I didn't test this, but if you had turned on CNN International or maybe Sky News or something on the day of the bombings in Baghdad or in Pakistan, you might have had a lot more coverage. BBC News covered it in the morning right. on the radio in a way that was, you know, almost equivalent to the way they covered the Brussels attacks, actually. Right. I, I think it's a totally fair point that um, that the media is a demand economy like anything else. Um, not not in kind of the the bad sense of the term, but in the sense of you know they report on issues that are important to people, and there's a feedback loop of that, and and sort of in and media has to be responsive, right? Um, if they were just covering things that nobody was sort of interested in, we'd be saying. Why isn't this getting, you know, why isn't this other set of issues right. getting more coverage? So, you know, look, the media attention is a limited resource, but, you know, uh, Americans' attention is also a limited resource. Um, I think that unlike other um, types of attacks in the region, uh, this one sort of had a particular gut punch and was maybe an opportunity to to sort of re-engage on the, in those uh, issues in a way that Americans might have been able to, might have been able or willing to connect with differently. Okay, um, moving on. Speaking of novelty, here's something you don't see every day. The Justice Department indicted last week uh, seven Iranians for allegedly launching cyber attacks on U.S. banks back in 2012 and a dam in New York on the control systems of the dam, a uh, small dam, which is not the Hoover Dam, in New York State in 2013. Um, this is the second time that the United States has filed criminal charges against hackers uh, the first case, of course, was in China a few years ago. Uh, not totally unexpected, this move. It had been sort of telegraphed by DOJ through a few press leaks. But um, I guess what I found so interesting about this was I read this less as an advertisement that uh, DOJ warns Iranians are hacking the United States, which, of course, we already knew. Both All of these cases have been publicly reported as much as uh, DOJ and acting in a way as a proxy for the intelligence community warns the world, we're really, really good at finding hackers. And this attribution challenge, not the hurdle that people thought it was before. We can find you. We can find pictures of you. We can find your name. We can find where you work. We can find, you know, all kinds of things about you. And we will publicly identify you in some cases. Of course, this makes me, and I've reported on this to some degree before, um, we know who lots of guys are who are not indicting. Like, I think we actually have quite good intelligence on who a number of these hackers are. But I kind of look at this as a big advertisement for the NSA. Right? So I don't disagree. Um, I think that uh, the United States is... Um 
is certainly taking up the challenge of, um, of demonstrating to the rest of the world that the attribution issues are not quite as big an issue as um, other nations may have been previously relying on. Um, and I think that's why indictments that go down to the individual level are so important, right? Um, there's been sort of a, a widespread belief, oh, well, you can attribute to the level of the nation state, but you, you, know, you can never attribute down to the level of the person. And these indictments are really saying, we got it all. Yeah, we know when, totally. how, where, why, you know, what you ate for breakfast that day. Right, right. Um, so I do think that there's sort of, um, there is a really powerful message um, to leadership around the world about uh, what the consequences of, um, of significant attribution might look like. That said, do the indictments themselves do anything, right? So surely there are other ways to sort of let people know, hey, you know, we know who these people are. Uh, you know, do you think that it um, deters future Iranian hackers, future Chinese hackers? Well, Jack made, not Jack, but sorry, James Lewis made the argument from CSIS that the Chinese indictments may have had a deterrent effect because they shocked the system, they caused embarrassment, we outed their tradecraft. Yeah, I think there's a big debate going on right now between those who believe that the Chinese indictments had an effect and those who believe that they didn't. Um, and so on the one side of that is John Carlin, the Assistant Attorney General for um, uh, National Security, who has talked publicly about the effect, uh, that this, the deterrent effect that the indictments had, and Jim Lewis of CSIS, who has kind of backed him up and said that there's, um, that, you know, don't underestimate the cultural impact that being called out and with the indictment and threatened with sanctions had on the Chinese leadership. It was important. Uh, on the other side of that debate is Jack Goldsmith, who kind of has an oh, come on attitude toward this. And, um, you know, and... Uh, the other day, Admiral Rogers was asked about this, and uh, or was it Admiral Rogers or, or Clapper, um, I forget which, and said, gave some sort of non-committal suggestion that perhaps the level of, of hacking had, you know, not been appreciably decreased. There's been some other indications from inside the intelligence community that it has gone down. Uh, and so I think it's a very open question, honestly, and and um, and I think there's uh, also reason to wonder whether China and Iran are similarly situated here. China is a country that um, does not want to be thought of as an outlaw country in the international system, wants to be integrated into the international system, and wants to do as little as it has to do in order to in moderating its behavior to get that done. Iran is an open supporter of lots of terrorist organizations. It has a fiery anti-American uh, ethos to its whole public presentation. 
And the idea that they may not mind occasionally getting caught hacking things is much more plausible to me than with the Chinese. So yeah. I will offer a grand unifying theory that allows both Jim Lewis and Jack Goldsmith to be correct. Drum roll, please. Here it comes. Okay, so here's my grand unifying theory. Um, there is this uh, emphasis or obsession within the intelligence community, raising the cost to the enemy. You hear this all the time, raising the cost to the adversary. Um, so I actually think that it's possible for both things to be true, right? So you have the indictments and you signal to them that, hey, we can attribute really, really well. Um, and that's not just saying, hey, we're going to know who you are. It's saying, hey, you have to spend a lot more money and a lot more time hiding your tracks. Because if you aren't afraid of getting caught, you can do a lot. But I think they've estimated um, that uh, about 40% of the cost of the Stuxnet virus was um, uh, sort of efforts to hide uh, what was going on, right? So I mean, this is, these are really, really significant costs um, to sort of an overall project. So I think there's sort of, there's a way to say, hey, um, you better start spending more money hiding and less money actually doing damage and that in, the, in raising the cost, you actually reduce something. Then I can see why people like Clapper and, and Admiral Rogers would want to say, oh, but we still see you. We don't believe for a second that you're not doing this. Um, you may think you've gotten better at, uh, at hiding your tracks, but we still are on you. Um, so I do actually think that sort of if you take a step back and look at the grand kind of, <laughs> The larger game, I, I think there's a way that everybody might be at least a little bit right here. Yeah. Um, but time will tell, or or maybe not. I also think if you look at it just from a, from a pure spycraft point of view, right, when you're telling your adversary, like, we have basically figured out your methods, or we've found your network, or we're willing to expose you, that's a big deal. It shuts it down. As you said, Susan, they have to take considerable steps to cover those tracks. And frankly, I mean, there's a little bit of like, you know, give the government a little bit of credit here for transparency. Like, officials are forever going out and going on and on about the threat from Iran and the threat from China. Well, to the extent that they're able, because they're not going to do complete sources and methods, but they are putting that stuff out there publicly and making a case that they say we're willing to go and try to make in a court of law, which is about as far as you can go, you know, in, in, in our U.S. system with saying we're ready to, like, put our money where our mouth is. So, you know, that it, it, unless you believe that they're making it up, which for reasons we talked about before, they wouldn't be that stupid to just make things up in an indictment or before a judge, then, yeah, good on you. No more talking in general terms about the threat of Iran or North Korea or China. Name them. Identify it. Specify it. And they did that. Ugly gorilla. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite part of the that Chinese. That was the best one of the Chinese <laughs> The Chinese indictment. Ugly, Ugly gorilla. gorilla. Ugly yeah, gorilla. You know? That was good. Um, all right, let's move on to, uh, to object lessons. Uh, Why don't you go first? You move first? Okay. <clears throat> so here I am, picture it, sitting on the couch enjoying my, you know, coffee and Sunday morning shows with my husband, and suddenly he gets this Facebook alert that says, Are you okay? It looks like you're in the area affected by the explosion in Lahore, Pakistan. Let friends know <laughs> that you are Okay. And when I get a look at him, your living see, room is not in Lahore, Pakistan. We're definitely not in Lahore, for Pakistan. The we record. don't even decorate like we're in Pakistan. It's a totally different aesthetic. It's a very different motif. It's a very different motif. Do you decorate like you're in a bomb zone? Because that's how we decorate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they I've don't seen, have I've kids. Seen your so style. Everything's beautiful. Yes, it is, it's, it's an aggressive form of. Somebody thing once came into my parents' living room um, and looked around, and he said. What style is this? <laughs> and my father, without batting an eyelash, responded, late 60s graduate student. 
That's the way we, that's the way we, we decorate. That's great. That's great. Well, so no, but yeah, obviously, um, Joe was not in Pakistan. But this is this new function, I think, after the, the Paris attacks. The safety check. Right. So you can check in to let people know, don't worry, uh, I, I'm in Pakistan, but I'm safe. Um, and so I actually tweeted this out and it found it, I think, two or three other people. I've seen a number of people. Too. So some, there was some glitch in the matrix. <laughs> and actually, at least he got an alert that said, are you okay? Uh, it looks like you've been in the, you're in Lahore, Pakistan. So he knew right away. Nothing. Right. It looks like a number of people got alerts that say, looks like, are, are you okay? Um, you know, so I saw a number of people on Twitter sort of tweeting, what happened, guys? What's going on? I mean, I think it almost sort of, it's, it's, um, it's a mechanism that's intended to reduce panic yeah. by letting people know that, that their loved ones are okay. That may have generated a little bit of panic in this case as people, you know, believe that Washington, D.C. was yeah. under assault. It's really something. But, well, we're glad he's safe. We're okay. It's okay. We're fine. It was a little, it was a little scary there for a minute, but we're okay. Good. All right. Uh, Susan. All right, so mine is this um, Borowitz uh, headline. Uh, unlocked iPhone worthless after FBI spills a glass of water on it, which is pretty awesome. Um, the best line, though, is calling the accident, quote, one of the biggest embarrassments in FBI history. Bureau spokesman Harlan Dorenson told reporters, there's no way to express how bad we feel about what happened to that phone. <laughs> which is so good, but if this was true and not satire, which it is, um, would that even rank as one of the most embarrassing moments in FBI history? Oh, I doubt it. I don't know. I don't even know if it'd be top five. Well, so the, the, it's an interesting question. Uh, do you, but the thing is, like, embarrassing as opposed to, like, bad. Because, like, Hoover wasn't embarrassing. He was just kind of evil. Right, although they're not mutually exclusive. Right, but he, they, they weren't sort of in, mostly incompetent about it. They weren't, like, dropping water on people's iPhones. Sure, but I, I think that no there iPhones. are other notable examples of FBI incompetence. Yeah, I'm I just sure. think... I'm sure many we don't know about. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. At any rate, just stick that phone in a bag of rice overnight. Get Fire it up. up. You're going to be fine. Um, and I will say, Did I shared this on Twitter. <laughs> they should. You should uh, You should email Jim Comey. I Have do, you tried the bag of rice trick yet? I, I, I do I, hope I, that the FBI is compiling all of the suggestions they've received I, over oh, the course I of the past six weeks. I just want to say about the bag of rice trick, the... Um, when we had our boating, when you capsized, when we shipwrecked uh, off a true story, a true story uh, that has been told on on Rational Security before. See back episodes. Um, I tried that bag of rice trick, and uh, no, it didn't. I don't work. think it's meant for like perils at <laughs> sea. I think it's sort of it's more the. Um, it didn't. The rice didn't taste good. I guarantee, I guarantee you, <laughs> what is probably the most times it's been used, people dropping the phone in the toilet. You know, guarantee it happens it. to the best of us. I guarantee that it's like the number one cause of iPhone submersion is toilet-related submersion. There you go. I yeah. will say that I once dropped my iPhone in acid. Were you, like, that you were taking? So I, am a little, <laughs> I have a little bit of an allergy to the preservative they use in ordinary um, contact lens solution. So there's this, like, what? crazy contact lens solution that has, and actually it has, like, you know, acid in it. That's, you, like, use it overnight. You, like, put it in this little basket. It's crazy. It's really Wait, crazy. You have, an, you have an allergy to the preservative? 
in lens solution, but not to acid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then you like you use this. You like put these your lenses in a little basket in this like it's a whole mechanism, and then you have to leave it for twelve hours, and then it neutralizes, and then it, your contact lenses are. Oh, cleaned. but you don't put the right in. You your don't eyes. put it. You do not put the okay. acid into your eyes. Anyway, I, one night Oof. I I knocked my thing over onto my phone. Um, it of course stopped working, um, and then whenever I took it to the Genius Bar for repairs, um, they took it to the back room, and then they came back just totally like bewildered and we're just like what happened they're like i just want to show you and they showed me like the inside of my melted phone um and i got a, a, a lot of attention at the uh wow. at the genius bar all worth it because you got attention it was totally worth it and apple they did replace my phone which was very nice of them so thank you apple sorry for all the mean things i've said about you <laughs> over the past month and a half bygones <laughs> Uh, ben, what have you brought to class? I have brought to class a book by Adam Siegel uh, entitled The Hacked World Order, oh, which yes. was the latest um, Hoover book soiree that Shane Harris has not attended. Never attended. You have still never has, attended. Oh my you know God. I'm never coming. Uh, he has never <laughs> Just, attended. Yeah, that. at this point. Um, what's the point? So this, uh, I think... We're going to ban him next book he writes, though. Is, That's his punishment. Yeah, it's, we're going to not hold one for you. The next time you write a book. Um, so uh, Adam... Uh, I have not read the book yet, um, but uh, I commend uh, it will be this week's Lawfare podcast, uh, the interview, which is with Jack Goldsmith. It is one of the more interesting China cybersecurity discussions I have heard in a very, very long time. They do discuss this question of whether Chinese uh, behavior has uh, abated and the relationship to the indictment. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to read this book, actually. I think Adam is, he's a scholar at the Council on Foreign Relations, a China specialist and a sort of China cyber specialist, and he really should be writing for Lawfare, which he isn't. Um, but you Come should, on, Adam. Um, but um, I, I think, you know, based on this interview, I'm very, very excited to read the book, I think, which I think promises to be really, really excellent. And so it is high up on my list. Great, and congratulations, Adam. Okay, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Really appreciate all your comments. We try to get to all of them, uh, so keep tweeting at us. And when you download the podcast, please remember to leave a review uh, and a rating and let people know what you think. Uh, and keep your positive feedback and your negative feedback coming. We like both All of fans. it. We like both fans. We tell like us constructive you hate criticism. Us. Yeah, tell us you hate us. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I respond to that. But, you know, in general, we can take it. Uh, the show is produced by, or sorry, is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Jim Comey and the Apple Dumpling Gang. <laughs> It's not your best. You're like dumping apple. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I like oh, like B minus. Yeah, like, that wasn't just, great. That's not great. That wasn't great. But I, mean, I, I imagine coming with a band, band show, which like yeah. I think he would it, probably be pretty good at. If he were in a band, it would be something folksy, folksy and yeah, like, yeah. Like Jim, Kim Coney is basically a Boy Scout. Yeah, he's a, a very really tall one. I would, I would so put tall. money on that Jim Comey is maybe an actual Boy Scout if I had to bet. I bet he's right. He, I think he's a scoutmaster in his spare time. Yeah. He is very tall and much taller than Loretta Lynch, as we've made yes. clear at that yes. podcast. Yes. The man is like a giant. She's, well, she's, she's, I have had to sit on a stage with, yeah. with, with Comey, and you definitely feel every inch of height you do not have. 
Like every, you know, I'm I'm not a tall guy, and I think he's more than a full foot taller than the I am. The Jim Comey complex. Yeah, I understand it. Sweeping Jim Washington, D.C. Jim Comey, we know you're listening. Please explain the genetic freakishness that explains your tallness. Short people around the world are, are upset with you. Watch your secret. <laughs> uh, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. 